The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about a very well-known problem that I'm suspecting just about all of us suffer from, and that has to do with capacity. It just seems that there is never enough. So our jobs, regardless where we work, seem to keep moving at a dizzying pace, and there are often multiple competing demands on what seems to be more and more limited time. Or as one of my guests has said, there's never enough time. I don't care what you do. There's never, ever enough time. And as if that isn't enough, then one of several things seem to happen to my clients. So your manager or managers, if you're in a matrix organization, add a project. Or, and in addition, there's a development program. While it's a great opportunity for you and a great opportunity to build profile and develop your skills, it often comes with a project or an assignment or additional set of meetings in some So there's one more take on your time. And then... Inevitably, there's somebody on the team who leaves, and suddenly you're trying to navigate that one more job, one more role. And you've got more people to manage and more projects to do and more deadlines, and you find yourself drowning in too many things and not enough time or energy to get it all done. So what we're going to talk about today is how do you deal with those capacity gaps? So what can you do now? How do you navigate that environment? We're going to get some practical tips for you. And then more importantly, at the end, we're going to turn to you as a manager and say, what can you do to manage the capacity of people that work underneath you? So with me today is an expert on capacity, Dr. Jesse Sostran, a nationally recognized leadership coach and workplace expert who writes, speaks, and consults about how do we get great work done. He's written three books, one, The Manager's Dilemma, the second, Beyond the Job Description, and the third, Remaking Communication at Work. Jesse's been featured on a number of television and radio show programs, including MSNBC, Fox Business, and NPR. He's been in a number of online or on publication, paper publications, Huffington Post, Fast Company, Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, and we could go on. And he's a regular contributor to Strategy Plus Business, to Entrepreneur, and to Recruiter.com. So, Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today, Wanda. It's good to be with you. Likewise, uh, we're all keen to hear any tips you can give us that help us with this capacity problem. So let's start with this whole challenge of time and capacity, something that you've called the manager's dilemma. Now, from your point of view, what's the core problem that's happening here? Well, it's it's a great question uh, because you asked about the core problem. You, You mentioned the symptoms, you know, not having enough time 
or energy or focus or resources to get it all done. Um, but if we really step back, and, and let me unpack this first by defining the manager's dilemma. To me, it's, it's that pattern of behavior that sets in when the gap between the demands you face and the resources that you have available to meet them widens past the breaking point. I'm sure we'll get into what the breaking point looks like for you, for me, for others, but you know when it happens. And as you said in your introduction, you know, it could be the extra project that dropped into your lap unexpectedly, or it could be that surprise resignation of a colleague that requires you to pick up the slack. No matter how it's triggered, it's that invisible line between capacity and demand. And when it's crossed, a series of trade-offs tends to kick in, and you get caught in firefighting mode. So, you know, which goal rises above all of your other priorities? which fire of the day is going to get your attention, while others are selectively ignored just because there's not enough bandwidth to deal with it all. So when these kinds of inevitable trade-offs start to occur, you get stuck in the manager's dilemma. And I call it a dilemma because there's really no obvious solution. You can't necessarily throw more time at the problem and fix it because now you don't necessarily have the right focus. You don't necessarily have the most productive or effective habits. And so we need to really understand how that happens before we can look at solutions. So I'm going to, I want to talk later about the state of affairs and why we got to this place. But let's go to the practical side first. Because it seems that absolutely everybody I talk with has a badge of honor about the being able to do more and more and more and more. So are there warning signs that tell us that we've gotten too far out of that capacity range and we should be paying attention to those? I I think so. And I think the better we can get at reading our own warning signs, uh, the more proactive we can be. So, yeah, let's definitely get back to some of those bigger picture structural things that are causing the conditions for this, but let's first stay practical. So there's something that um, for me, I can tell you, is, is part of my pattern. So the warning signs might be a little fatigue at the end of the day, whereas typically I try to end the day on a high note, feeling good about what I accomplished and what I'm looking forward to. But for you, it may be that fatigue. Um, maybe you don't get the same amount of time in the gym. Maybe you get a little irritable because you're waking up tired. You know, for others, it might be that frustration from not having time to connect with family or friends. Or maybe it's that bit of extra weight from poor diet when you're on the road traveling. Or maybe just the disorientation from excessive travel and meeting after meeting. So for others, it's that predictable sore throat, you know, that comes after you've pushed past your limits for too long and your body starts to tell you, you know what, you're pushing past the breaking point. So whatever your warning signs are, it's important to anticipate what those are because the manager's dilemma is right around the corner from those warning signs. By that description, sort of fatigue at the end of the day, um, a bit more irritability, a little less sleep, not getting to the gym, um, weight gain, kind of one sore throat or cold or cough after another. Jesse, I don't know that I know anybody who doesn't have those warning signs. You know, I think you're right. Um, And that's one of the reasons I, I dedicated part of the last 10 years of my career to this problem because I realized that so many of my clients to your point in your introduction, we're facing the same thing. And, yeah, it looks different, but it occurred to me that there are some structural forces. So I, I don't want to throw a bunch of statistics at your listeners, but let me share a few that I think are really compelling. Eighty percent of managers say that the demands they face are increasing. Sixty-six percent say that their top cause of stress is workload. 
you know, it used to be people issues or job security, and now it's literally demand. Nearly half of managers say that they struggle with a lack of clear focus and direction, and 61% of managers say today that they're working below their optimal level of energy. So if you look at those numbers, they're very compelling evidence that the conditions for the manager's dilemma are ripe. But I came across a statistic that really was the exclamation point. The Corporate Executive Board did a study several years ago, and they found that the average manager now has 12 direct reports compared with seven before the recession in 2008. So just think about that for a minute. At face value, it's, it's a leap of 40% in the increase of your average workload. But if you look between the lines, that means a significant draw on your already dwindling time and energy. So where are you going to get that extra 40% for those goal-setting conversations, for those weekly check-ins, for those difficult performance conversations that you might have to have? It's 40% that we just don't have. And I think that speaks to the question we all face this and the answer about what to do still has to come after understanding some of the structural forces, which I'm happy to get into later. Okay, we'll come back to that one for sure. Um, This strikes me, listening to you quote these, that uh, every client I'm dealing with understands, particularly as millennials are entering the workforce, that the ability to manage, to have time for the conversation, to talk about careers, to give feedback is absolutely critical to drive performance today and into the future. And with 40% more direct reports and already more work than you can do, all of that managerial stuff is going to go right out the door. So let's go backwards, Jesse. What's, why do you think we're having these structural issues? What's driving this? Well, I think we've literally baked in some of this thinking into our conventional wisdom about work. I mean, if you, if you look at the literature, you go as far back as 1981, you can see outlets like the Harvard Business Review beginning to publish articles that deal with the growing concerns of managers and leaders who are overwhelmed by the struggle to cope with increasing demands, rapidly changing conditions. That sounds like today, but it was as early as 1981 that I saw substantive pieces about this. From there, you know, you add another quarter century of cutbacks, downsizing, increased competition, globalization. The modern workplace now has just accepted the premise that this inverse equation of shrinking resources and increasing demands is business as usual. So you said something about that badge of honor or, as somebody said, humble bragging, you know, about doing more with less. I think that's status quo today. And most of us, of course, work in these high-demand cultures where there are written and unwritten rules about the requirements of doing more with less. You're just supposed to do it. But I think it's a myth. I don't think we do more with less. I think we do less with less. And I think that it's time for people to take a stand against that, recognizing that better performance and more distinctive contributions actually come with fewer things, but greater focus and greater achievement with fewer things. I love that idea that we could call it a time and say do less with less. I have to tell you a story, though, and then I'm going to come back to how you do this. Yesterday, I was listening to a very senior executive give what should was an inspiring um, discussion as part of a panel. Very well done, you know, very charismatic person, great leader, doing a great job. But there was a bit of a, a playful question that said, what matters more, intelligence or hard work? And the response was, you know, given some baselines on intelligence, actually hard work. I'll take hard work any day over just a few more IQ points. 
that kind of mythology, and there's nothing wrong with that statement, I wouldn't disagree with that statement at all, but all that does is incite us to work more and more and more and more, as opposed to trying to do less with less, which I think is your point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, how do we get out of this dilemma, though? Because every company I know is trying to be competitive, and they will say, we have to deliver yet one more slightly better than our competitors are, and that one more slight better is going to be one less person, one less um, dollar spent, and one bit more delivered to a client in some capacity. So how do you see a way out of this one? Well, I mentioned the structural forces that I think are contributing to this. Um, you know, there, there's another real big force that fuels and sustains the manager's dilemma that we actually have more personal influence over. And really, it's it's our ability to be consistent and proficient when it comes to assessing our priorities and saying yes and no accordingly. Uh, and in fact, when we don't do that well, whether it's just saying yes to everything because we want to be seen as a team player, we want career-advancing opportunities, we think that we're bulletproof, um, when we don't do that well, we actually spread ourselves too thin. And so our already precious margin of time, energy, resources, and focus gets spread too thin, and we actually become our own worst enemies. So I think the first thing is get better, not just better, but get great at understanding what's important, understanding what your unique contribution is to the team and the organization, and marry those two together in choices that allow you to focus on the work that not only helps your personal brand get you noticed and contribute great things to the team, but actually limit the drain or the bleeding of your precious capacity for those other things that really aren't in your sweet spot, that don't add a lot of value, and that are ultimately just distractions. Okay, so you're saying, in effect, to really, as an individual, do a deep self-analysis of what am I really good at, what needs to get done that I'm not great at and it just drains my energy, and what am I doing that isn't important so that I focus on the one or two things that really matter. Did I get that fair? Absolutely. And, and again, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but I wanted to say that on the outset, Wanda, because a lot of times we feel disempowered by this. Oh, okay, so every company in the U.S. economy feels like doing more with less is just doing business, and so therefore they're going to bake that into the culture, so what can I do about it? So while there's some truth to that, as I mentioned, based on those statistics, there is a lot more influence than we often feel like we have. Okay, all right. I know I'm going to do a personal story. Um, Several years ago, well, people would still say it to me now. I just don't listen to them very well. I do have a lot of capacity, and I do a lot of things. And as my mother would say of me when I was a little child, it's impossible for her not to drag on one more thing. You got any capacity, and I add something to it. And people used to say to me, why do you have to determine your priorities? And quite honestly, it used to just make me angry. Like, what right do you have to tell me that I need to reduce the number of things that I'm doing? So, Jesse, if you're giving me advice, how would you advise me to deal with that? Well, adding one more thing isn't the problem, but sometimes there's a particular one more thing. Let me just give you a quick example. So imagine you're getting your work done and you're getting it done well. There's a nice rhythm to your day. You're feeling satisfied about your contribution. Then out of the blue, there's a leadership change. And so now you have a new boss. Okay, so the change itself is not that taxing. You're resilient. You're agile. So, in fact, maybe it's exciting, but you have to invest some unbudgeted time and energy to absorb those new expectations from your new boss. And you've got to manage up and educate them about how your projects are going, how business is done, and so forth. 
So there's more meetings. You're thinking differently about those planning sessions. And that has just tilted your margin or your capacity to zero. So you're now hanging in the balance, but you're holding on. A little less sleep, you know, maybe final fewer, you know, revisions on your work because you've got these deadlines coming up, but then it happens. It could be something in your personal life could be something with your health, could be some additional change at work, or maybe it's something positive. You know, you start that MBA program that you always wanted to. Whatever that next thing is, when you're at that zero margin and you can no longer keep up, then you get stuck in firefighting mode, and that what's, that's what slips you into the manager's dilemma. So, again, you begin to work against yourself with these counterproductive behaviors because you're taking shortcuts, you're choosing which fire gets put out, and so forth. So it's that one more thing that I'm asking people to pay attention to. It's not being ambitious or driven. It's knowing where that line is and when you've crossed it. Okay, so that one more thing that puts me at the edge. I can just about barely handle it. But then when anything else comes along, I'm into the danger zone, completely out of capacity, beyond capacity, and starting to do destructive things. Okay? Yeah, exactly. And you'll see people do it, and it's easy to see it in others, of course, not ourselves, but... There's an easy improvement, but you just don't feel like you have time to make it. Somebody gave you some really good advice, but you just don't have the energy to to make the change and follow that advice. Or there's a logical next step to execute your strategy, but you feel like we just don't have the resources to do it. Or maybe there's some obvious solution right in front of you, but you're just too distracted, too tired to even notice. That's when you're stuck in the manager's dilemma. And that perpetual gap of increasing demands and shrinking resources continues to disorient you in those kind of counterproductive behaviors. Okay. All right. So I'm getting the picture here. Um, and the notion is not about just taking on more and being ambitious. And it's not about saying no to everything. And it's not about um, only setting priorities. It's really about understanding your capacity. How, where, how close are you to that capacity, zero capacity zone? And what one more thing can you take on that puts you at the tipping point? And then there's nothing to deal with the inevitable shifts and turns and additional stuff that comes on top. Okay? And then we're into a manager's dilemma, which becomes a self-defeating cycle. You're not spending enough time with your team. You're not prioritizing because you don't have time to do it. You're not thinking strategically because there's not a moment to spare. Your health starts to suffer. Your sleep starts to suffer. The stress levels go up. And increasingly, you're going to put more pressure on your team also, which just makes them into a manager's dilemma. Sounds like a terrible self-defeating cycle. All right. I didn't Jesse, mean to be the bearer of bad news here, but it's yeah, true. It's important to recognize all the components that go together to put us over the edge. And I will say, you know, 10 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about stress and time management. Now people can't get enough of stress and time management. We should tell us enough. We're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to dig into the how do you manage this. So not just the bit about setting some priorities, but about doing more than that. How do you focus? What are the opportunities and what do you do with it? We'll be right back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Jesse Sostren, who's a nationally recognized leadership coach and workplace expert. Jesse writes, speaks, consults about what it takes to get great work done. The three books he's written, the first one in particular, The Manager's Dilemma, is the one we're talking about, but there are two others, Beyond the Job Description and Remaking Communication at Work. Jesse's been featured in a number of television and radio shows like MSNBC and in print like Fast Company and Huffington Post, as well as being a regular contributor to Strategy Plus Business, Entrepreneur, and Recruiter.com. We've just been talking about capacity, a thing Jesse calls the manager's dilemma. That's that thing where everything is humming along smoothly. You can handle the work that's in front of you. Suddenly something changes and your capacity has gone to zero. And while you can navigate that and handle it, if anything else comes along, you're into a self-destructive zone, which means you don't have time to do anything and lots of things start to suffer. The manager's dilemma. Okay, so Jesse, we've been talking about this. I think we've got a good description of what it looks like. We recognize the warning signs. We understand structurally why it happens. What I want to know is how do we navigate it? So what do you advise people to do? Well, we, we talked about the importance of understanding your warning signs. And I think, again, just it bears repeating. If you can understand the warning signs and you can catch it early, you can actually make some proactive changes. But the deeper you slip into your own dilemma, the more energy it's going to take to change those behaviors that got you stuck in the first place. So being proactive, being very honest with yourself is table stakes for actually managing or navigating through this dilemma. What I suggest is a real-time pulse check with three simple questions. These three questions can allow you to self-assess in the moment where you're at and whether you're at risk of slipping into the dilemma or whether you may be already there. The first is around demand. So it's have the demands on you increased over the past several whatever time period, days, weeks, months? Are the demands likely to stay elevated or continue to increase? And finally, do you have enough time, energy, resources, and focus to address them? So again, if you answer yes, yes, and no, the warning signs are there. And in my book, I have um, several self-assessments, a short and a medium version that allow you to actually diagnose some of the causes. But once you get there, if you realize that, yes, you're in that danger zone, then the next thing you do is notice the pattern that you're in. Okay. All right. So how? What does that mean, notice the pattern? Well, I like to draw attention to eight examples of this. And maybe in a minute, Wanda, if you would be up for it, we could actually 
maybe do a case study with you. Uh, maybe your okay. listeners might actually get a little bit more out of it, something practical rather than me talking about some of these conceptual ideas. But first, let me just say there are typically eight kinds of patterns of behavior that follow the dilemma. The first is that you get typically trapped with unwanted options. Again, you feel like you don't have a choice. So you're unable to actually break that pattern. So I call it following the contradiction. It's learning how to see those subtle choices that allow you to say, wait a minute, I don't have to keep this machine going on autopilot, waking up tired, um, being stressed throughout the day, feeling like I'm floating from one fire to the next. You actually have a choice. And if you find the moment of leverage, you can do that. But it requires you to follow the contradiction. So that's one example. A second one is that the dilemma tends to turn us around and distort our values and goals. So I call it finding your line of sight to focus on the right priorities. So there are very simple and straightforward ways that you can actually readjust your goals and expectations throughout the day, whether that's a morning or an end-of-day check-in with yourself, with your team, with your supervisor, whatever the case may be. So whether it's following the contradiction or determining that line of sight, there are things that you can do to break the pattern. Okay. All right, you have me intrigued. I am pretty sure that the second one is the thing that I do more often, which is readjusting. It's not so much my expectations. It's readjusting what I believe I need to absolutely positively have done now and what can wait till later. And so a bunch of stuff starts to get jettisoned. When it does, then I personally find I am less stressed and I've got the capacity then to go ahead and deal with what's in front of me. Is that what you mean? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so now you said there are eight of these. You just gave me two. got to hear some more. Give me three and four. Well, we, we talked a little bit earlier about um, your distinctive contribution. So one of the things that the managers, the one that can do is it spins our wheels. So we end up spending extra effort with less effectiveness. So the quicker you can distinguish your unique contribution to make a deeper impact, the quicker you can overcome that trapdoor from the dilemma. So that might be looking at, again, your skill set, the, the secret sauce that you bring to your team, the way that you lead through difficulty, whatever it is, understanding that distinctive contribution and really focusing that on what the team or the organization needs is that sweet spot that I talked about. Um, here's another one. The, the dilemma tends to put leaks into our fragile time, energy, and resources and focus. So an example for me is that, at the moment I'm the most distracted, the most stressed, guess what I do? I check my email and my phone even more frequently than normal. Now, for you, Wanda, listening to me say that, you're thinking, Jesse, that's totally counterintuitive. That's the time where you need to put it in a drawer for crying out loud or put it on silent. Don't let yourself fall into that trap. And yet, that's what I do. So that's a, an example of a leak. And if I can plug that leak... Um, I'm going to regain some of that precious margin back in the form of my time, my energy, my resources, my focus. Okay. All right. I certainly recognize that one in myself because when I am in this manager's dilemma, I can't seem to focus my brain and I shift from one topic to the next, to the next, to the next, which we know is inefficient. And I feel literally like I'm spinning in circles. If you can ever get yourself focused down onto one thing, it doesn't take much to make some progress on it, and suddenly you'll feel a lot better. Exactly. You, you start to feel better. It's not like it's an impossible situation, but the problem is we don't think about our own thinking. And so actually, I, as I was researching this book, I started writing down some of the things that the senior leaders that I worked with were saying, and because it just... It caught me by surprise how counterintuitive it was. I, I would hear things like, 
well, I can't afford to recharge right now because things are just too busy. Or I know with more time that we could do better, but we have to move on to the next issue. Or I'm too busy now, but I'll refocus on priorities once things settle down. You can see how backwards these statements are, and yet people tend to become too tangled in their own experience to maintain that objectivity. And it's with that loss of objectivity that we lose our judgment. Yeah, I can see that one. I certainly see that one. Boy, does it take um, hard work to focus in that moment because your brain, it's hard to get your brain there. And I think there are some disciplines. I find that I do, and it's largely because experts have told me that if you clear your desk or you go to a space where there are no distractions, it's easier then to focus in on the one thing you really need to accomplish right in that period of time. But I just have to get it all away from me. I go hide the phone. I turn the phones off. I turn the computer down. I sit in a different place. Anything to just keep me from shifting place to place to place. Yeah. And, and for you, you just gave a personal example. You, you want to take it out a little bit deeper and do a little case study here? Sure. Let's do that. All right. Well, let, let's just talk about your warning signs. Earlier, I talked about some of mine. I shared some examples. When you feel stretched thin and you're kind of at that point where there's a lot on your plate and you're starting to get to that razor-thin capacity line, what do you notice happens in the way you show up to work and the way you interact with others? All right. I am absolutely irritable. You do not want to be around me. My son is really good at saying that's the moment he goes and hides in his room. Don't ask mom any questions. Do anything. It's terrible. Um, And when I had a larger staff at one point, people used to say, I can see you stressed. How can I help you? And my routine response was, I don't even have time to tell you how you could help me. Basically, go away and leave me alone (laughs) is the signal that I would send out. I do understand the consequences of that one. Trust me. But that's what happens when I tip. That is very interesting because you just gave us one of those kind of counterproductive statements. Um, I'm too stressed to ask you for your help right now. Yep. And that's the very time that we need to delegate work. So you mentioned some nonverbal cues that you're sending, probably some, some words that you're saying that really suggest I am pushing hard and I am in one of those states where I might not be receptive to feedback or I might not be receptive to team collaborating and so forth. So now let's imagine that that plays out over several days or even several weeks. So your dilemma sets in. What do you then notice about what happens with your work in general? Well, I do try not to stay there for more than a day, maybe two at the best. But I promise you people, you know, I can leave people's feelings sort of bruised if I'm not very careful about this because they just don't, why are you being so mean to me is basically what they say. And if it continues, you know, then I'm going to get a lot more symptoms. Like that's when I stop sleeping and that's just a completely self-defeating cycle. So, A, no one wants to be around me, and B, I'm not sleeping well. Uh, And the B part, uh, of course, is something that has a residual effect on our energy. And the, the A part of that, around the effect of others, there's typically an echo with those. And so, to your point... Uh, people remember it. And so the next time they may be more or less likely to offer support or they may be more likely to keep a, a greater distance, which means that the very people, again, that you need to be supportive of the bigger picture aren't available to do that. And, of course, right. you know, our personal brands get affected by some of these relationship gaps that, that occur. So now let me ask you, do you see this kind of thing in others? Do you see other people's sure. dilemma sure. now that you've sort of done your own self-assessment? 
Yeah, I see this every day. I don't think there's any question about that. And I don't think people are even aware of what they're doing. Um, It often shows up for me in the coaching work that I do where the direct report is someone I'm coaching and their manager has chipped into a manager's dilemma. Not for a day, we're talking for a sustained period of time, like months. And it starts to damage the relationship. And the individual I'm coaching is now looking for I'm not help. How can I get along better with my manager? They're just frustrated and angry and hostile to me. And it becomes personal. It feels personal at that moment in time. So, yes, I see this thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I shared those statistics earlier, but I think, you know, you just validated that from your perspective. Yeah. And I, I wanted to do that for your listeners because this is very personal. We can talk about the concept of being stretched too thin and having your capacity go to a zero margin and now some bad habits kick in. But when that shows up in your world, when the relationships that are important to you are potentially affected negatively, when that cycle of sleep and diet and exercise starts to get dysfunctional in some way and your actual health is affected, it becomes very real very quickly. And yeah. to, to uh, the point we, we made earlier, this is something that is a phenomenon affecting every industry, every level. And you don't have to be a yeah. manager to get stuck in the manager's yeah. dilemma. I think everybody does understand that one. So, Jesse, let's go back to the what do we do. So you gave some four very powerful techniques, and I'm going to put it back into my case. So you said first that there's a bunch of unwanted options. It looks to me when I'm in the manager's dilemma, it looks like there is no way out of it. Um, people will say, what about this, or what about this, or what about this? And I reject all of them. So rather than, so that I see that, I can recognize it. Um, It's often difficult, though, to figure out how I follow the contribution and recognize a choice I have. I can say, I've already said, that if I refocus on what it is I uniquely need to do, or what has to happen right at this moment in time, then those certainly help me, because what that forces me to do is to zero in on the one thing, and as soon as I make some progress on the one thing, I'm taking the pressure off. Mm-hmm. So that I recognize, and I do clearly recognize the leaks in energy that you spoke about and that need to focus in on the one one thing at a time and get in the zone with that one thing. And for me, that is about a different environment so that I'm not distracted by the file that I haven't touched, by the email I haven't sent, by the PowerPoint I need to take care of. What else would you advise me or anyone else to do? Mm-hmm. Well, this is, um, first of all, thanks for sharing your story here. Um, I, I appreciate that. Um, and I want to just give you two very practical things because um, you mentioned that one of the swinging doors of the dilemma that, that I outlined is, is in effect here, and this is that feeling trapped with no option. So two very practical things you can do to follow the contradiction and see a way out of that. First, give yourself permission to take a step back. Now, that sounds simple, but if you don't literally give yourself permission, that pervading thought that there's just no time to step back or go to the balcony, as we say, to get the bigger picture view, then you, you won't do it. So as your demands pile up, you know, it's easy to get caught in that reflective cycle. So give yourself a minute or even five minutes to say, what's going on here? So ask what and why. That's the second piece. When you feel a little bit tight, when you feel like, okay, wait a minute, I, I actually I can't breathe as well, um, I, I don't see the expansiveness of the day like I used to, ask what is going on here. Um, what's important to me right now, and what am I focusing on? You know, our focus 
is what creates our reality. The, the brain research that many great scientists are doing now is just confirming what we already knew, that, that focused attention creates experience, and experience, of course, reflects our reality. So give yourself permission to step back, Wanda. Ask what and why, what's going on, and see if that triggers a way to see the underlying dynamic. Because, again, if you can see it in the warning sign phase, then those relationships that might get affected and then some of those priorities that might get trampled over don't necessarily have to go that route. So this is, in effect, my being able to say, look, folks, I'm in a manager's dilemma, whatever I want to call it. Um, give me a break. I need to concentrate. I'm going to sequester myself off for a bit. Or even, for my case, if I can just pull back and give a small, tiny piece of something to some other people to get them moving, it also creates capacity for me. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is where the conventional solutions break down. And so if I were to say, Wanda, you know what to do. You're smart. You're an effective business executive. Just delegate better. And that doesn't matter because that's wisdom. You already have that conventionalism. You know you should delegate more, but it's the pattern of thinking and behaving that prevent you from using the solution that's at your disposal. Same thing if you were to ask me, Jesse, what are some good time management tips? I could tell you about how to clear out your inbox, and I could tell you about where to put things on your desk, but that doesn't matter. That's like an umbrella at home when you're outside stuck in the rain without it. Yeah, the manager's dilemma just twists us a little bit to the point where we rush out the door in the morning and then we go, oh, wait a minute. So you have the solutions, but giving yourself permission to step back, ask those deeper questions, looking for the underlying dynamic that allows you to put them in motion. Okay. So this is not about looking for the magic bullet. This is about stepping back from the edge from, of the precipice, in effect, recognizing what it is that's happening and just that bit of check is enough to see other alternatives. Is yep. that fair? If there was a silver bullet, I would have uh, bottled that up in a top ten list and would have been a rich guy by now, but there's no shortcut to adding value and there's no shortcut to managing the dilemma here. Okay, okay. I will say, I say this to my clients all the time, um, there are particular parts of my work that I don't love to do, but I'm the only one that can do it. And it's a mandatory. It's just part of it, and there's only part of it I can do. What I do find is if I will get smart about structuring that so that other people can do the non-value-add components of that, and I focus in on the single thing that I'm really needed for to add value to it, um, it takes a little bit of stress off. It makes it less unrewarding for me so that it's a less onerous use of time, and it is down to that my unique value contribution. But I have to pull back from the edge to recognize that. Yeah, and you may have to work through some of those bad habits. We talked about, you know, checking email constantly. That's not adding value necessarily. Um, So if you can get to that mindset and then stop doing some of those behaviors that cause the leaks, then you've put two and two together. Okay. All right. Jesse, we're going to take a break again. So, but And when we come back, there are two things that I want to do. One is I want to talk about how do we say no, and is it possible to say no, and what does that look like? And then more importantly, I want to focus a little bit on if I'm managing a group of people, how to become a good steward of their capacity as well. So with me today is Jesse Sostren. The book that we've been talking about is The Manager's Dilemma, that challenge where on the edge of the precipice where you have no capacity left but something else has been added to your plate. And the question now is how do you manage? And there have been four major tips from Jesse on this one. 
One is to recognize the contributions you are, the contradictions you have where you believe there are no choices and get on the balcony, reevaluate. Two is to refocus, readjust your expectations and get a line of sight on your values and goals. What really matters was the urgent thing at this point. Number three is to recognize where you make a distinctive contribution and your effort is needed uniquely here. Uh, focus specifically on what the team needs. And the last one is to stop the energy leaks, the things that distract our attention and take us off that are ineffective. And those four are pretty powerful tips for how to manage the manager's dilemma. So we'll be right back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Jesse Sostren, an expert in leadership coaching and workplace, particularly around getting great work done. The book we've been talking about is The Manager's Dilemma, and it's that precipice where you're out of capacity and something else is thrown on. And it starts now to impact your health, your sleep, your irritations, your mood levels, um, every component now of your physical health and well-being and your interactions with other people are starting to go downhill. You're spinning in circles, firefighting only, doing the minimum you can get away with and not focusing on what really matters. We've been talking a little bit about what it takes to get out of that manager's dilemma. One of the things we haven't talked about is can you say yes and, or no, excuse me, not yes. So, Jesse, what's your take on saying no? Well, to me, it's one of the most important words in business. Um, and it's counterintuitive because, uh, of course, saying yes to opportunity is one of those things that we're taught from a very early age that helps us rise through the ranks in leadership. But I think it's time to challenge that. And um, I think I've made the case here that the manager's dilemma is the reason to do so. Because saying yes indiscriminately really sustains the dilemma longer than it needs to. So the way you typically evaluate opportunities is you follow those unwritten rules. If there's a career-limiting choice, you say yes because you don't want to risk it. But I think that um, as a leader myself, I respect people more who are willing to articulate the reasons why. So that's the first principle. What are your reasons? So you may need to more attentively evaluate the demand that comes your way, looking closely at the skill set you have, the opportunities you have, 
and really do that matchmaking. Uh, maybe you want to work with a coach, uh, or maybe you have a trusted relationship with your manager and you can talk through this transparently. If not, you can do it alone. But it's the idea that if you just say yes, but you don't necessarily say yes if and negotiate your reasons, then you're going to end up holding responsibilities that drain your time, energy, and capacity, and they don't necessarily fit in that sweet spot that we talked about earlier where your personal brand is enhanced and the value you're adding to the team is also escalated. So it's, it's a practice. It, it requires that benefit of questioning, of putting things out there, and there is a level of courage involved in this. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, absolutely. No question. I love this. Um, I often find that people feel that they have to say yes, and they'll say yes to everything and deliver 120% of what was asked of them without ever understanding what was really needed. And often what was really needed is a small thing relative to the request. It was just a bad statement of the request. And this yes, if Yes, if it can be next week. Yes, if I can get this other person to do that. Yes, if if you can take this off my plate. Yes, if you can live with this level of quality. There's a thousand and one things you can say yes, if to. Yeah, and I know we don't have time for it today, but your listeners may hear, hear a connection here. And it's a connection I've been making because one of the biggest barriers for middle managers advancing to senior leadership is the ability to go from execution to that big-picture strategic thinking. And this is exactly the discipline you need to break through that execution mindset of saying yes to tasks and activities. So it may mean delegating some more to others. It may mean negotiating a reduction in your specific portfolio. Um, But just saying no doesn't necessarily establish the business case or communicate your reasons why. And that's where the risk of not being seen as a team player and not being seen as somebody who's hungry to advance and come back to bite you. Okay. So it's not just saying no. It's one is respecting the what you're really good at doing and why is this particular moment important and how does this help to advance my career. And then it's at the say yes if so that we're negotiating. All right. Good advice. Let's turn to talk about people who are managers of other people, whether it's a small team or a large team, and how can you be a better capacity keeper is the word I think you often use. Say more about that and what we can do about it. Well, I think leaders are the capacity keepers. Um, Whether they do a good job or not, whether they're conscious and intentional or not, that is something that we could debate. But leaders are the ones that are responsible for basically making the operation go. So before I break down what I think capacity keepers can do, let me just talk about the cultural implications of the dilemma for a minute. If you've got people in your organization who are faced with this inverse equation of increasing demands and shrinking resources, and they're pushed past the capacity gap into the dilemma over a period of time, that becomes ingrained in the culture. And what that means is that you're going to have chronic capacity gaps that are deeper and that last longer. So when business is good, people are stressed because there's new opportunities. They're pushing harder to take advantage of those. When business is bad, they're stressed because business is bad. They're trying to keep up with competition. So there's literally no rhythm. It's just one chronic capacity gap. And the second-tier effect of that is that um, you, you look at pro, protracted disengagement, which, of course, Gallup has done a lot of surveying, and we can see that 80% of the workforce is, is actively or passively disengaged. I link that directly to the manager's dilemma, because the same signs that a clinical psychologist would tell you are signs of 
impending burnout or disengagement are the same that I write about in the book that represents the manager's dilemma. So it's cultural, and if the leaders in the organization don't watch for it, they simply um, aid its, its own fuel, and they actually inadvertently work against the organization by not calling it like they see it. So you want to talk about three steps here? Yep, absolutely, three steps. So I, I mentioned the first one, a real-time pulse check. So if you're a leader, ask the question, are the demands on your people increasing? Are they likely to continue to stay elevated or even increase beyond that? And do you have sufficient time, energy, resources, and focus? So that real-time pulse check, is it yes, yes, and no? If so, you're in the danger zone. The second thing, and this is a little bit more subjective, but very important to find clear, concrete ways to do it, is to look for evidence of capacity gaps in your culture. So, for example, do your people tend to humble brag about how busy they are in order to get attention? Are you rewarding people for doing more with less rather than trying to do better with fewer but more important things? And have you inadvertently created these unwritten rules that make it nearly impossible for people to say no without some kind of career-limiting implication? So, you know, ask questions. The best way to figure this out, walk the halls, have one-on-one conversations. Ask people, have your demands shifted lately? How are you doing with that? Have you been challenged to keep up? Do you feel like you have the resources you need to get it done? What sort of things are happening within the team? So if you ask honest questions, you're going to get powerful responses. Okay. That sounds fabulous. And what's the third one, the last step? Stop trying to solve the problem. (laughs) Stop buying solutions like better time management, um, but actually look at the structural forces that are fueling and sustaining your company's dilemma. So, again, I'm not trying to be the, uh, the Debbie Downer of this party here, but the reality is that the skillful ability to spot and shrink capacity gaps is an urgent responsibility. So instead of trying to fix things, if you get into conversation and you actually honestly recognize what those gaps are and you have conversations around budget and resources that actually can close those substantively, you gain a tremendous amount of credibility with people in the organization. Yes. And then I can imagine that there is increased capacity rather than this chronic gap to be able to do additional things that no one had anticipated with enthusiasm, with excitement. Jesse, it strikes me, I mean, I agree with you. I've thought this from the beginning when we started talking, that this is more of an answer to the disengagement problem than any of a number of other things. So it's not a matter of just reiterating to people the work hours or buying a time management solution training program or doing some analysis of how you spend your time. It is really starting to care about the people that work for you and with you, how they're doing in their own capacity and where the gaps are. So to ask yourself the questions of where you think people are and is the capacity increasing or decreasing, as you've iterated. And then the second thing is to really just walk the halls and talk to people about their experiences. So you have the information to know what to do to help and then set about actually solving the capacity issue, not buying yet another online solution. Yeah, and this is where if any of your listeners have ever been in some of these industries that are notorious for being undercapitalized, like, you know, a restaurant business, you look at some of the statistics on the failure rate and you look at the the number one driver of failure and you realize that it's undercapitalization. Think about your capacity as your capital. (laughs) Think about you as a leader basically capitalizing your team and your people to get it done. 
And right. if your business mission matters, and if winning in the marketplace matters, and you're serious about that, you've got to capitalize it. But yet, if you're prolonging these capacity gaps, or worse, you're unaware of them, but you're still expecting the same results with fewer resources, you're at risk. And I think okay. that first honest turn is the most important one to make. Okay. Jesse, I love that one. To think about the capacity is capital, because if we say people are our only resource, then their capacity is our capital. Fabulous. With me today is Jesse Sostrin. The book we've been talking about is The Manager's Dilemma. And I think, Jesse, the biggest thing I take away from this conversation is that there are tactics beyond the classic time management solutions that are going to make a difference in our understanding of capacity. And the first one is to recognize when I or my team is out of capacity. And then the second is stopping some of the crazy-making thinking that we've gone through in the four points, things like um, allowing the leaks of my time and focus. So, Jesse, thanks for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Join us next week. My guest is Cindy Pace, and we're going to be talking about your personal brand. How do I define it? How do I understand it? And how do I manage it? Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.